0: Wonderful. Well, you are a generous church, and I thank God for the way you give so generously and continuing. And so I'm sad that uh, I'm sad of the passing away of Simon Walker's moustache. Sadly, it's clearly left us. But everything else, there is so much to give thanks to God for in our church. And what a great, what a great prophecy from David Lynn. Just you know, the the volcano, but the magma chambers. And when he sent that through to me. This week, with no clue of everything that had been going on in the church, I just thought, my goodness, how kind of the Lord that he sees everything. That while we don't see everything, particularly this time now, while we're all split down, nothing is escaping his gaze. Um, Nothing is escaping his purpose. Nothing is escaping him. Moving us forward as a local church, which he continues to do, and I simply can't thank God enough for that, and I simply can't thank God enough for... You. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians, chapter 1. Just a few weeks ago, we started a series in the book of Colossians, and what a start it has been. In the opening eight verses of chapter 1, Paul celebrates the miracle of this church's existence. He takes them on a trip down memory lane, reminding them that they are saints and family in Christ, Reminding them that the Holy Spirit is clearly present in their lives, which is why they exhibit such faith and love and hope for the future. And reminding them that all this is possible through the power and splendor of the gospel that has been preached to them by Epaphras and has indeed changed their lives. And then in verses 9 through 14, he simply prays for them. He prays that first of all, their knowledge may be complete that they may understand Jesus Christ in a fuller way, that they may know him personally and genuinely and impactfully in a way that completely and utterly changes their lives and accordingly that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they may see him for who he really is and then desire with all their hearts to want to worship him and live for him and so he prays for their walk in the Lord and he prays that God would give them endurance, that he would give them knowledge and that he would give them much gifting for thanksgiving. And then in verses through 20, 15 through 20, he points them to the real reason why he's written to them at all. He points them to the supremacy of Christ. You know, one commentator says, verses 15 through 20, are among the most closely reasoned presentations of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. You know, when we come to these verses, then it's important to understand we are in particularly on holy ground. Paul takes us right here to new vistas of being able to gaze at the glory and preeminence of supremacy of Christ. They are staggering views of Jesus Christ that I trust will not be lost on us this morning. And so today we're going to read the first three verses, 15, 16 and 17 of this incredible section on the supremacy of Christ. This is the word of God. Let's read together. He... is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, and as we gaze at the supremacy of Christ, Lord, I am significantly aware of my own limitations Lord, as we stand on holy ground, it is so easy to find ourselves unaware of this moment in Scripture. Lord, did you help the preaching of the Word today? Holy Spirit, would you be with everyone in the church and beyond, everybody who's listening in in this moment. Would they know your presence with them? And would you show them Christ? Lord, would we be dazzled by you? Would we be amazed with you? Would we not be familiar with these words? Would we be staggered? In Jesus' precious name, Amen. In 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition took place in Chicago. And this is what Kent Hughes says about it in his commentary. Almost 100 years ago, in 1893... The famous World's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago and some 21 million people, an astronomical number of people, especially in those pre-automobile days, visited the exhibits. America, and particularly Chicago, which had risen Phoenix-like from the Great Fire of 1873, was showing off to the rest of the world. And the show was good. Among the features of the Columbian Exposition was the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives of the world's religions met to share their best points and perhaps come up with a new world religion. D.L. Moody saw this as a great chance for evangelism. Moody commissioned evangelists and assigned them a preaching post throughout the city. He used churches and rented theatres. He even rented a circus tent to preach the word. Moody's friends wanted him to attack the Parliament of Religions, but he refused, saying, I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will want to turn to him. D.L. Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job. And indeed, it did. The Chicago Campaign of 1893 is considered to be the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's celebrated life as thousands came to Christ. 1893, God led through grace many thousands of people to come to know him as Lord and Saviour. And Moody's approach that he would preach Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ, was a beautiful approach and strategy. But you must understand that Moody's approach did not originate with him. No, ultimately originated with the apostles themselves that we see in God's Word. When you read the Gospels, you must understand that what they're doing more than anything else is preaching Christ, peerless, supreme, and all-sufficient. And the Apostle Paul, in each of his letters, does exactly the same, which is why he gives so much clear attention to the supremacy of Christ right here in the letter to the Colossians as well. And arguably, maybe there has never been a letter where it is more important to preach Christ than this one. See, the Gnostics who had come in, these false teachers who had come into this church in Colossae, They had their own version of the Parliament of Religions. And as a result, they believed that Jesus was nothing more than a rung on the ladder towards the Supreme God. He was good. He was helpful. He was a good place to start, but he was certainly not the way and the truth and the life. No, he was just simply one of thousands of emanations, thousands of rungs on a ladder to get you to the one Supreme God. And so Paul, having heard of this disastrous teaching that is now coming into the church, he writes to them, having heard from Epaphras of what is taking place in this church, he writes to this church and the one thing he wants them to see more than anything else, the one thing he wants to preach to them more than anything else, which he does right here in these verses, is the supremacy of Christ himself. And so in these verses, he preaches the supremacy of Christ to them. He wants to literally show them Christ. He wants to pull back the curtains on how supreme and preeminent and glorious Jesus Christ really is. And so accordingly, what a passage this is that we have before us today. And it is my hope, church, that we will be freshly amazed as we examine Christ this morning. That we'll be freshly standing in awe of Him as we once again remind ourselves of who He really is. And that our hearts then would be wonderfully refreshed by Him and freshly drawn to worship Him. In glory and splendor, understanding He really is supreme in all things, including our lives. So two points this morning. Number one, the supremacy of Christ in personhood. And then number two, the supremacy of Christ in creation. Not complicated, just completely following the text that Paul gives us here this morning. So, number one, the supremacy of Christ in personhood. And let's read together the first eight words of verse 15. It says, He, meaning Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. I mean, those are staggering, staggering words that are being preached there. See, in the opening half of this verse 15, Paul deliberately describes Christ as the image of the invisible God. It's deliberately provocative language, deliberately bold language, deliberately loud language, because he wants them to understand Jesus is not just a rung on a ladder. He is the destination. He is the image of the invisible God. He's not just a means, just a way to be worshipped among thousands. No, he is to be worshipped as the destination. Because he is the image of the invisible God. He is supreme in all personhood. See, all the way through the Old Testament, and then quite a lot of the new as well, you see referenced back to the olden days that God is without doubt completely invisible. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you get this over again that God is invisible. He can't be seen. And so you see him in different theophanies, which is where you see the burning bush, it's where you see the cloud and the wilderness and so on and so forth. But no one has actually ever seen God for who he really is and what he is really like. And yet, in John 1, verse 18, which begins by affirming this reality, saying, No one has ever seen God, then goes on to say these incredible words that the only God who is at the Father's side, He, Jesus, has made Him known. What a staggering reality! God is invisible. No one has ever seen him. But then Christ comes into the world and he is the image of the invisible God. He is a complete representation of God himself. For in him, we will read in verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. (laughs) He is a full image and representation of God himself. And so we read in Mark chapter 9 verse 37, Jesus saying this of himself. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not just me, but him who sent me. What he's saying is to have received God was to have received him, which to have received him in his presence was to receive the Father. He repeats the same thing in John 14, verse 9. We read, once again, Jesus. He says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip is in discussion with him about this and he's saying, Philip, do you not understand? Do you not get it by now? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Why? Well, because Philip, because Philip I am the image of the invisible God. The writer to the Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Oh, I love it. He's not some poor copy, poor fake or just weak imitation of who God is. No, he is a complete and exact imprint What Paul wants to understand or help this church understand is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's an exact imprint, an exact representation. He's not a rung on the ladder to gaining access to God himself. He's not a rung on the ladder to understanding who God really is. He is God. He's the destination. He is fully God. He's the image of the invisible God. An exact identical representation. He is God. My friends, this has, without doubt, incredible implications on our lives. Because, my friends, what I want you to understand then is that if you want to know what God is like, then look at Christ. Look at Him. If you want to know what God is like in his mercy and his love and his grace, then look to Christ. If you want to know what God is like in his purity and in his holiness and in his strength, then look to Christ. If you want to know what God is like in his tenderness and in his gentleness and in his compassion, then look at Christ. Do you think sometimes you can encounter people and they, they seem to know God, they like God? But they have no idea what to do with this Christ thing. As if they're two different things. Or they really know Christ. And they really like Christ. But this God of the Old Testament. Man, I don't like the look of Him at all. My friends, they're the same. They are the exact imprint of one another. Jesus Christ is the exact image and representation of God Himself. If you want to know what God is like. Open your Bible and study Christ. That is what he is like. He is the exact image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. Not a rung on the ladder towards the supreme God. He is God. And you know, that's why I think in the transfigurations, the moments were so incredible. Incredible. Because they were just engaging with this man, Jesus Christ, and amazed by him. But then he would transfigure at different times, as you see in the Gospels. And it's almost like he would just peel back so that you could see his glory for a moment. Like, whoa! But that's who he really is. He is God. If you want to know what God is like in his mercy, and in his grace, and in his purity, and his strength, and his tenderness, and compassion, then look at Christ. Born them to understand and us to understand and the supremacy of Christ in personhood for He is God. And then number two, the supremacy of Christ in creation. Let's look again at these verses. Let's just read them again from verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the second half of verse 15, Paul calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. And it is a phrase that I think can be so easily misunderstood. So just to cut straight to the chase on there, Paul is not talking here about origin. He's talking here about rank. And the two things are very different things. He's not talking here about Christ being created in terms of origin. No, he's talking about his rank. You see, when it comes to origin, Paul himself knows full well that Christ always has been because he is fully God. It's what we read about in John 1 verse 1. In John 1 verse 1 we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we go on to discover through that gospel that that word is Christ. The word he's talking about there is Christ. Christ has always been. Christ was with God and Christ was God. God. You know, that's something that 4th century Orionism never understood. It's something that Jehovah's Witnesses still do not understand to this day. But Christ was never created, because Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There has never been a time that Christ hasn't existed. He's the Alpha and Omega, the second person of the Trinity, God in His fullness. Paul isn't talking here then about origin. What he's talking here, which would be common in Jewish tradition and Hebrew language, is he's talking about rank. He's talking about authority. He's talking about honor and rights. We see this, for example, in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 verses 26 and 27. We see God himself talking about the rank of the Messiah. He says, He shall cry to me, You are my father, My God and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. Do you see? I will make him the firstborn, the highest rank of all the earth. He's talking there about Jesus. He's talking about the rank of Christ, the rank of the Messiah, his honor and his authority and his rights. Christ, listen, Is supreme in all things. He is the firstborn of all creation. And what he's helping us see here. Then is Christ. Is supreme in all creation. It's not to do with origin. It's to do with supremacy. Rank. And glory. And kingship. And honor. And authority. And then he unpacks just why that is. Why it is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Why it is that he gets such honor and rank and kingship and supremacy. As so first up then he helps us see that Christ gets that rank. Because Christ is the founder of all creation. Look at verse 16. It's incredible. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authority, all things were created through him and for him. Everything, all things, every single thing that has been made has been made through Christ. He is the one who stands and sits at the bottom of it all. He is the creator king of all. Everything that has been made has been made through Christ. Paul tells us that that begins with the heavens and the earth. You know, as you walk into the the workshop then of Isaiah 40, you need to understand that we are walking into the workshop primarily of Christ. If you want to know who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, Christ has done those things. It is Jesus Christ himself who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Two-thirds of our world is covered with water. We We can't even hold a teaspoon of water in the hollow of our hand, but Christ can hold it all in his supremacy in the hollow of his hand. It is Christ who has marked off the heavens with a span of his hand. Such is the reality of when he made them. And it is Christ who has enclosed all the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance. Do you see? This is Christ he's talking about here in his supremacy and majesty. And before Christ, the nations themselves then are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. But then he helps us see Christ isn't just at the bottom of all things that are visible. It's not just that he breathed out the stars and the sun and the world and the earth. No, more even than that. He was also the founder of all invisible creation as well. And in particular, then, he references there the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. You know, in scripture and in Jewish literature, those four descriptions, they're all mentioned here. They all refer to four classes of angelic powers, with the last two referring to the highest orders of angelic realm. We're not exactly sure throughout the Bible how exactly all this works. There's a lot of mystery when it comes to understanding angelic powers. But what Paul wants to make very clear to us is Christ was the creator of all angelic powers. This was a really important point for the Colossae church. Because they were being taught by the Gnostics that Jesus Christ was just one of many. And so they also were taught to worship angels. Worship them. I mean, there's Christ and there's angels and there's different realms of angels. We should just worship them all. They're all rungs on a ladder to getting to the supremacy of God. And yet Paul wants to make it clear. Listen, he's no rung on a ladder He is the founder and author of all creation, including the angels you say we should worship. He is supreme in all creation. The founder of the heavens and the earth. The founder of all things visible and invisible alike. One of the reasons then that Christ is so supreme in all of creation is because he made it. Do you want to know then which one of the trinity actually did the business when it came to the world? It was Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. He's supreme in part then because he founded all creation. He then goes on to help us see how Christ is the goal of all creation. Not just the founder of it, but the goal of it. Again at verse 16 in the second half, he says, All things were created through him, and for him. He not only made all things, but we must understand the primary reason they were made was for him. Peter O'Brien says it this way in his commentary, helping us to understand it. He says, This is a stunning statement. Paul's teaching about Christ as the goal of all creation finds no parallel in the Jewish wisdom literature nor in any of the rest of Jewish materials for that matter. For everything began with him and will end with him. All things sprang forth at his command, and all things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning and he is the end. The Alpha and Omega. And one day everything will give him glory. And so it will. One day everything will give glory. Him glory. Even the trees and the plants and the stones will give Him glory. One day every knee will bow from every tribe and language and nation and give Him glory because He will be seen as the true Creator King that He is. One of the greatest challenges in our humanity is that we have exchanged the Creator for the created but one day the Creator will return and every knee will bow. As you realize He's at the center of it all. And everything has been made through Him. And everything was made for Him. That's what the Apostle Paul tells the Romans in chapter 11 verse 36. He says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And then he says, So I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He echoes the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul understood we are not at the center of our world. Christ is at the center of our world. We are not autonomous and godlike in all things. No, Christ is autonomous and the one true God in all things. Our society has made us at the center and Jesus over at the side. But Paul understood, no, Jesus is right here and we are over at the side. You were made by Him, and you were made for Him. He is at the center of every single thing He made. And my friends, as Christians, what a privilege that we get to realize that, don't you think? What a privilege that we get to bow the knee this day, in light of that day to come. While thousands reject him. While thousands are lost. While thousands are walking around as if they have the authority of God in their life. What a privilege we get to realize, no, Christ is enthroned in my life. And so I will bow the knee to him in my life. My God. My King. My all. One day every knee will bow to him. He is the founder of all creation. And He is the goal of all creation. For all things were created through Him and for Him. And then as the final part of the jigsaw, as He discusses with us the supremacy of Christ in creation, He helps us see that Christ is also the sustainer of all creation. He's the one who keeps it going. In Verse 17 we read, And He is before all things and in Him, all things hold together. This is mind-blowing. He is before all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Before anything was, He was. He's always existed. And now everything in all of creation, He are before Him. He is still ultimately overseeing and thrown on high all things that are taking place. And accordingly, He is the sustainer of all things. In him, all things hold together. The writer to the Hebrews says it this way in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why is everything in the world still existing? Because he upholds it by his power. Both people that worship him and people that hate him. The reason why we're still breathing is because he upholds it by the word of his power. The reason why you are still existent and breathing as you watch this sermon is because Christ right now, by the word of his power, is sustaining you. You know, just this last week, I came across a piece about atoms. I've not been known to be a studier of atoms, although I did do physics and chemistry at a high advanced level at school. But here's what I found out about atoms. Atoms are made of protons and neutrons and electrons, as many of you would know. But what I hadn't fully appreciated is although you can't see them, atoms are obviously the, the basic building block of, of everything. All of creation is ultimately made as you dumb it all down by atoms. And atoms are then made up of protons and neutrons and electrons. If you could see them and could kind of get a view of atoms, which you can't possibly do, you'd find an atom is almost like a solar system of its own. There's protons and neutrons, electrons that are all moving round one another. And here's what I found out this week, which astounded me. Science and scientists have no idea. What actually keeps those atoms with the protons and the neutrons and electrons actually spinning and not colliding and not doing coming to an end? They're not sure. They can have a guess, but they actually have no idea what is keeping them going around each other like they do. Well, my friend, I ain't no scientist, but I'm a pastor. And you ain't too many scientists out there either, but you are Christians. What keeps atoms going the way they are? What keeps protons and electrons and neutrons in orbit, let me tell you, it is the supremacy of Christ's word alone. That is what holds all things together. If he stops, if he stops, stops sustaining, everything is going to fall down before our eyes. Everything's gone. But the reason why everything hasn't gone, even though science can't figure it out, is because Christ is upholding all things by his power. Is that not amazing? John Kitchen says it this way in his commentary. He says, We owe both our existence and our continuance to Christ. Life as we know it, including all the so-called laws of nature, is dependent upon the ongoing, ever-present, continuous command of Christ, which holds all the elements of the universe together in an ordered reality. On the macro scale, this includes the orbits of the planets around the stars, and on the micro scale, this includes the dynamic powers that hold atoms and their subatomic particles in whirling consistent wholeness. Christ is the glue that holds all things together. He is the tuning fork to which all created reality adjusts and conforms. He is the principle of cohesion in all the universe. I love it. Jesus Christ is the glue that holds all things together. It is Jesus Christ that upholds all things by the word of his might. It is Jesus Christ that holds all things together and sustains all things. It is Jesus Christ's reality and sustenance and presence that stops this all folding down before our eyes. Everything, every atom, every drop of water, every bead of light, ultimately responds to the glory of his name. That's why when he walked the earth, he could say to people to be healed, and they were in a moment. That's why he could say to the storms to stop, and in a moment they stopped. That's why he could walk on water, because he demanded the atoms of water below him to stand firm, to take his weight. That is why he could say to dead people, rise again, and the very atoms of their bodies react, and they come forth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, always has been and always will be. For all things have been made for him and through him and all things are being sustained by him. By the word of his might. My friends, what a comforting and faith-building revelation this is. <laughs> what a comforting and faith-building revelation it is to know that Christ is sustaining all things. Because think about the implications of that for your life. The one who died in your place, the one who gave his life for you as an expression of his passionate and personal and particular love for you, is also the one who through the Holy Spirit now lives in you. That's what he tells us in the Gospels. For all those that put their faith in me as Lord and Saviour through the Spirit, both I and the Father will come to live in them. For the one who died in your place out of love and mercy and grace and who now lives in you is also the one who in great power sustains all things. My friends, how much more then, given the reality of who you are to Jesus Christ, Will the one who sustains the universe surely then also sustain you? He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who sustains all things by the word of his power and he's the one who through the finished work of the cross has come into your life and promised you I will never leave you or forsake you. I will hem you in both behind and before. I will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. How much more, given the reality of all that he's done for you on the cross, is he going to sustain you? Not even a sparrow can fall from the sky without his will. He numbers the the, the amount of hairs on our head. How much more will the one who sustains the universe surely then sustain you, having died for you as an expression of his love? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Behold your God, behold your King, and behold your Christ. He is supreme in personhood. He is the image of the invisible God. The exact imprint, the exact representation of God Himself. He is God and He is supreme in all creation. Supreme, He founded it. He is the goal of it. He is the sustainer of absolutely everything you see. Pray then that you really would be freshly amazed by this reality. He's the one who died for you. The one who lives in you. The one who sustains you. And I pray that our hearts then would be freshly drawn to worship him as a result. What a king. What a savior. What a God. Our God. Our creator king. Let's pray. Lord, as we gathered around your word this morning, we we are aware that we are on holy ground. You are supreme in all things. You are the creator king, the God of all. Majestic, sovereign, preeminent. Lord, did you forgive us for times where we box you off and push you to the side and consider you like some type of genie in a lamp that's just there to help us and then get disappointed when you don't in exactly the way we deem necessary. Lord, would we just all bow the knee to you today and behold you as you really are, supreme in personhood, supreme in creation. For all things were made through you, and for you, and are now being sustained by you. Would we trust you, our creator, and our king. In Jesus' name, amen.